young man vanishes without a trace. Concern turns to terror when the ransom calls begin. Police and the FBI battle a brutal drug cartel. Uncovering a deadly crime ring that will do anything to get what they want. street gang thought they had figured out how to kidnap people for ransom again and again and never get caught but their one mistake was they underestimated the federal bureau of investigation i'm jim kalstrom former head of the fbi's new york office agents teamed up with one of the victim's brave relatives to break the ruthless gang who destroyed lives for profit June 27, 1996, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 90 miles north of Chicago on the western shore of Lake Michigan. Seventeen-year-old high school senior Jaime Estrada and his cousin Roberto Alvarez pulled up outside a convenience store on the city's south side. Jaime went in for sodas, leaving Roberto in the custom Monte Carlo Jaime and his brothers owned. So what's going on tonight? The store was a popular hangout where they often met friends. When Jaime came out, he spotted a girl he recognized. Jaime had been wanting to get to know the girl more and went to talk with her. catcher in local baseball leagues. Jaime was a popular kid. As Roberto was talking with a friend, he noticed the van pull away. He figured Jaime had left with the girl and would probably be right back. Returned after more than an hour, Roberto began to worry. Something was wrong. So Roberto decided to see if Jaime had gone home. He told Jaime's brother, Paulo, what had happened and found he had not come home. What's going on? No one had heard from him since he left. It was not like Jaime to run off, leaving his cousin and his car. 
His parents tried to figure out what to do. And then I've been waiting there for an hour. He still hasn't come back. Let's go look for your brother right now. They decided to split up and look for him in separate cars. His mother stayed home in case Jaime called. family searched the area for hours. Then, Jaime's oldest brother, Mark, received a page. The area code was 312 Chicago. After the phone number was 187, Jaime's personal code. Then, 911. It was an emergency. Mark stopped at the first phone booth he saw. He hoped Jaime was all right. A man answered, a voice he did not recognize. He said they had kidnapped Jaime and wanted $70,000 for his return. The man said they were serious and warned that if the family did not follow instructions, they would cut off Jaime's ears, skin him, and send body parts in the mail. And if anyone went to the police, they would kill Jaime and the entire Estrada family. Mark was in disbelief. He called the number again. Maybe it was a prank. No one answered. I didn't hear from anybody. Jaime's father returned home. His wife said no one called. They were all getting frantic. When Mark came back, he told them about the call, the kidnapping, the threats. Mr. Estrada wanted to call the police immediately, but Mark told them the kidnappers would torture Jaime. They'd kill him. We should do this. We can't go to the police. They said if we go to the police that they're going to cut off his ears, they're going to skin him, and they're going to mail it to us. The family did not know what to do. They struggled with the decision all night, waiting for another phone call. But none came. We're not waiting anymore. By dawn, Mr. Estrada could wait no longer. He needed to help his son. We need to do something. Got to call the police. It had been more than nine hours since Jaime was last seen. Mr. Estrada decided that he and Mark would go to the police. They had to take the chance. At the Milwaukee Police 2nd District Station, oh, yeah, the area code. Mark and his father explained what happened to a detective on the violent crime squad. I called them and they said that if we went to the police, that they would cut off his ears. Since this was an armed abduction that crossed state lines from Wisconsin to Illinois, the police called in the FBI. At the Milwaukee field office, 
FBI Special Agent Dan Kraft had just arrived at work. I was sitting at my desk and I received a call. An 18-year-old kid had been kidnapped. Kraft had to act quickly. I met with uh, the victim's father and his older brother and uh, tried to take a detailed interview of them based on uh, what had happened, when it had happened, uh, potentially why. I realized that uh, this was going to become a major case. Back at the Estrada house, Jaime's brother Paulo answered the phone. Uh, who is this? Brother. It was the kidnappers. The man on the phone changed the ransom to $30,000 and also wanted the Monte Carlo. What are you talking about? He said they could prove their threats were serious. They had shot Jaime. Jaime confirmed he was shot. He was hurt bad. He pleaded with his brother to hurry. Jaime! Still, the man gave no details for a ransom drop. The man said they'd call again on Paulo's cell phone. Hello? Hello? They shot Jaime. They, they, they shot him? They want $30,000. Paulo told the others the terrifying news. Paulo met his father and brother Mark at the FBI office. Agents immediately tapped Paulo's cell phone since the kidnappers said they would be calling it next. They also attached a recording device and tracing system to the Estrada's home telephone. As the FBI continued to set up, they kept interviewing the family not wasting a second at gathering information. One of the first things that we did was set up what we call a rapid start. It's a computer database that helps us to manage a major case. We utilized rapid start to put in all the information that we received at this point. Every little data point that we would come up with, uh, even if it was partial, the sophisticated database helps track leads and find links in complex, quickly moving cases. That afternoon, Paulo's phone rang. He knew to try to get as much information as possible. Keep him on the phone as long as you can. Go ahead. Hello. The caller asked if Polo had the ransom. The money. No. Polo said he had about half. Well, he yeah. needed more no, time. The drop is going to go perfect. Ask schedule. Jaime? Jaime came on the phone and Jaime. told his brother to hurry. He was bleeding. Tell your brother stop dragging it out. Tell your brother stop changing plans on us, eh? Don't worry. We're coming to get you. We're doing everything we can. You're going to be okay, all right? You better have it, bro. Hello? They hung up. While agents and detectives tried to trace the number, the Estradas moved to an adjacent room to wait for more calls. In a kidnapping case, 
the FBI tries to move deliberately, but not hastily. And we have a tendency to try to slow things down and work at our pace and try to control. When a victim is shot, now you're dealing with a life and death matter. And every minute, every moment becomes critical. Three hours later, Polo got another call. Special Agent Kraft was concerned about how Polo would handle it. These type of situations are extremely stressful to begin with. When you factor in a person who is a relative who loves the victim, cares about the victim, uh, they're going to act on emotions every time, and um, they can make bad judgments. But despite the threats to his wounded brother, Polo remained calm. The kidnappers insisted Polo make the ransom drop of the car and cash at a fast food restaurant in Chicago. They said they'd call back with more details. They hung up. You never want to introduce a civilian into a high-risk situation. But agents had no choice. Polo would have to drop the car off himself. But since he would need a ride back home, an undercover agent could pose as a friend to provide at least some protection from Polo. The team left for Chicago. Milwaukee agents called in their counterparts at the Chicago FBI field office. Special Agent Kevin Cassidy would take the lead in that city. Immediately after that notification from Milwaukee when we knew the agents were coming, uh, we started to organize our squad. And we knew that this was going to be a fast-moving case where we needed to be able to quickly uh, mobilize our resources. The drive from Milwaukee would take an hour and a half. That gave Chicago agents time to prepare. Violent Crime Squad Supervisory Special Agent Ron Hosko set up a command post at a local sports arena. Uh, we gathered a number of folks up on the west side of the city by the United Center in a uh, parking lot and uh, briefed everybody on uh, what we understood was the situation with uh, the kidnapping demands. Everybody's gonna be on United Center is centrally located which gave agents greater flexibility for quickly getting almost anywhere in the city. As Paulo and Special Agent Kraft traveled to the meeting place, Kraft used the time to prepare Paulo for how to handle the next call from the kidnappers. Well, I would coach him and practice with him. I would act as a kidnapper and fire things at him, and I could see how he would react, and I could you know, make suggestions to him, or you don't want to do that, or you want to stay away from certain areas, or draw them out more by asking specific questions. Polo and Kraft finally arrived at the staging area. Surveillance agents had already checked the fast food restaurant, the site of the ransom drop. The place was far from a controlled environment. And our concerns were that there was a lot of traffic, uh, foot traffic, pedestrian traffic, not only into the fast food shop, but in the area. And with the threats that we'd already received, we had uh, concerns about our uh, ability to prevent any kind of uh, violent act 
with uh, respect to the public who might be in that uh, in that area at the wrong time. But Paulo and the agents were ready. They had the money and the car. Yeah. And one other thing, don't get out of your vehicle until the SUV is in position. Polo got another call. Agents had him try to change the drop site to one that would be safer for everyone. But it was important he did not appear adamant. The longer we, in effect, negotiate through the victim's brother, the more suspicious the subjects become that there's some law enforcement involvement. Ultimately, the discussions between the victim's brother and the kidnappers resulted in their agreeing to have this exchange at a department store parking lot that was a few miles away from the original location. The kidnappers ordered Polo to leave the money in the Monte Carlo with the doors unlocked and the keys in the ignition. Once they had the ransom and were safely away, they would allow Jaime to call Polo to tell him where he was. Agents left right away to set up at the parking lot. It was an ideal location for protecting the public, but not Paulo. Agents would need to be hidden at a distance around the perimeter. It was Paulo who would have to face the kidnappers up close. But getting his little brother back was worth the risk. In 1996, Chicago agents and detectives were trying to rescue kidnapping victim Jaime Estrada. But the kidnappers would not bring their victim to the site of the ransom drop, according to FBI Special Agent Dan Kraft. What we generally will try to do is have an exchange, an even exchange, the victim and the money for an even exchange. In this particular case, the kidnappers would not do that. They, uh, it was not negotiable. Uh, it was not something I was very comfortable with, but sometimes you have to bend a little bit to get your ultimate goal. The kidnappers ordered Jaime's brother, Paulo, to leave $30,000 in the Estrada Brothers' custom Monte Carlo in a deserted parking lot. But the area was not entirely deserted. Surveillance units were hidden nearby, watching. Nearly 27 hours had passed since Jaime was abducted. Almost a full day since he was shot. Since Jaime needed medical attention, agents could not afford the time it might take to follow subjects or risk losing them. So they decided to arrest the kidnappers when the ransom drop was made. Unfortunately, the size of the location chosen by the kidnappers would make the arrest difficult to pull off. FBI Special Agent Ron Hosko. This was a big, uh, you know, fairly expansive parking lot that was empty. Our vehicles uh, were from a starting point on the outside of that lot, trying to maintain a discrete surveillance. So they had a fair amount of open ground that they had to cross to get in there. Agents planned to counter this problem by attempting to keep the kidnappers off balance. And they wanted the car left with the keys in the ignition and uh, the doors unlocked. 
But we were going to screw that up a little bit by having the victim's brother lock the doors to the car because it would end up stunning the kidnappers uh, ever so slightly to where now they will have to regroup, reevaluate the situation, come up with a different plan. After a few minutes, a gray sedan pulled in. It looked like there were three men inside. One of them got out, went over to the car, looked in, could see that the money was sitting on the front seat, so you could almost see him uh, with uh, joy and this uh, desire. And then he goes to open up the, the door, and he can't get the door open, and the keys to the car are in the vehicle because he didn't know what to do. So they go from being in control to now they have to react. We wanted to throw them off their game, and it swings the control back over to us. All units, go, go, go! The takedown signal was given. All units began to converge. But the suspects reacted instantly. They immediately accelerated away from us before the other surveillance units had an opportunity to close the net on them. Someone in the car pointed a gun at an agent, then threw something out of the window. They were weaving around the responding vehicles who are properly hesitant to ram that vehicle for any number of good reasons, not the least of which is that the victim could have been in the trunk. The suspects got on an expressway and tore off toward downtown. Despite the late hour, there was still civilian traffic in danger. We reached speeds of 120 miles an hour, and the kidnappers were in this stolen vehicle, and they were trying to cause an accident by going from one shoulder across four or five lanes of traffic all the way over to another shoulder, cutting cars off. Agents used their training to end the pursuit. And they were able to execute what we call the pit maneuver, whereby they actually bumped the rear quarter panel. And the vehicle did not lose control completely. It just swerved slightly, but it was enough for the driver to slow down um, to a much lower speed, and our vehicles basically boxed them in at that point, and they came to a complete stop. On the highway, agents and detectives surrounded the car. They knew the men inside were armed and dangerous. We still had great concern about weapons, and while we could have a perimeter, you cannot prevent you know, subjects from doing something you may not expect, like engaging in gunfire. We removed all of the occupants of the car. We ended up finding three subjects in the car. They all claimed to know nothing about Jaime Estrada and wouldn't even give agents their names. Each had ammunition, but no guns. Once they had the three men safely in custody, 
investigators checked to see if anything or anyone was in the trunk. It was empty. Jaime was not with them. It was certainly our suspicion that at least one co-conspirator was with, uh, with Jaime Estrada that was still holding him. Uh, and we needed to identify who that person was and where they were and uh, do that quickly. Agents ran the license plate number and searched the rest of the car and discovered a knife and a night vision rifle scope. They also found several pages, a cell phone, and a piece of cardboard with Paulo's cell phone number written on it. On the roadside near the start of the pursuit, agents located a loaded 9mm semi-automatic handgun, likely the object seen thrown from the suspect's car. At the Chicago field office, agents tried to interview each of the suspects individually. They refused to cooperate. Last time you saw a gang with lights and sirens. During the interviews, the suspects' pagers went off multiple times. Someone was desperately trying to get in touch with them. You know whose number this is. The men swore they did not recognize the numbers. What are you trying to hide? Look at these numbers. The investigators were sure it was the rest of the group trying to find out what happened. So they tried tracing that number. But it was an unpublished number, and the phone company would not give us the address. We pleaded with the phone company and promised them that we would give them a subpoena, but it's logistically impossible on a Friday night at 11 o'clock to try to get a judge to sign a court order. What do I have to do to give you these numbers? It had been a full day since the teenager was shot. Agents were frustrated that while Jaime was probably dying, a subpoena stood in their way. I tried to plead, you know, man to man, father to father. I said, you know, what if it was your child? Wouldn't you want law enforcement to do everything humanly possible? And he just basically said, I don't care. We absolutely swore to him that, uh, you know, trust us, we're the FBI. We will get you the subpoena. FBI? Could I please speak to the And they said, without there? a subpoena, we're not going to give you the information. The night ended with no lead on where Jaime was. The next afternoon, on the city's west side, someone dumped a body. Chicago investigators struggled to find kidnapping victim Jaime Estrada. Passers-by discovered a badly wounded man lying in the street on the city's west side. 
Chicago emergency, Oquendo. The Chicago 911 operator took the emergency call and immediately dispatched patrol units and an ambulance. Paramedics advised Illinois Masonic Hospital they were bringing in a man with a gunshot wound. He identified himself as Jaime Estrada. A Cook County Sheriff's investigator arrived at the hospital. The 17-year-old was not only alive, he was still conscious. The investigator asked the doctor in charge if he could talk with Jaime. He said Jaime needed immediate surgery, but since the OR was still being prepared, there was time for a quick interview if Jaime agreed. He said he could do it. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened? Went in a convenience store to get some drinks. He said two nights before, he'd gone to talk to a girl he liked. He didn't know her well. While they were talking, the driver pulled a gun. It happened so quickly. said it felt like they drove for about two hours. Several armed men beat him. He could not ID them. FBI Special Agent Kevin Cassidy. Jaime could not provide any real detail regarding the identifying features of his kidnappers due to the fact he was blindfolded. Jaime remembered passing three toll booths. He told the investigator that about 15 minutes after the third toll booth, the van stopped. The men hustled him into a house or an apartment, he wasn't sure which. There they roughed him up some more, yelling about the money he owed them for the drugs. I'll kill you, bro. I'll kill you! Huh? He tried to tell them they had the wrong guy. That was the wrong thing to say. You know what I'm saying, man? I'll kill you, bro. I'll kill you. Just give me the number. What's the number, S.A.? Grown. Yo, get this guy. I beat him They demanded the phone numbers to all of his family members. What? I got the number. 414-555-7577. The men carefully avoided speaking their own names, but there were others who did. Uh, During the time he was held there, he heard female voices, and he also heard one of those voices referred to a subject as Beto. Jaime believed it was Beto that guarded him most of the time. Sometime the next morning, Jaime was just getting to sleep. Suddenly. It took him a minute to realize he'd been shot. It even surprised some of the kidnappers. 
They promptly moved Jaime to a bathroom. He fell in and out of consciousness, so his memory was fuzzy. He remembered a white tile floor, a red toilet seat, maybe a red shower curtain. That was all. Jaime's gunshot wound had gone untreated for two days and was badly infected. He needed so many surgeries that doctors had to put him into a drug-induced coma so he could survive the ordeal. Doctors were surprised at the young man's strength, that he had survived this long. But their prognosis was not good. Several suspects were still at large. Meanwhile, on Newland Avenue in northern Chicago, a resident heard a commotion and saw what looked like two armed men forcing two others toward a van. The captives broke loose and ran. The Jaime Estrada kidnapping case was about to become much more complicated. The same day, kidnapping victim Jaime Estrada was found. A man in northern Chicago saw what appeared to be a double kidnapping outside his house on Newland Avenue. The victims managed to escape. The resident contacted Chicago police. And emergency operators sent patrol officers to the scene. Okay. Right up, right off of Belmont. All right, stay inside the house. Just letting you know the police are being dispatched as we speak. I was um, walking home. Dispatch asked the officers to transport the two victims to Chicago PD's Area 5 to be interviewed by FBI Special Agent Kevin Cassidy. One of them, Pedro Montoya, explained how he'd been abducted. A week earlier, he was outside his house when a van pulled up. Several men jumped out with guns and forced him inside. The other man, Chavo Rodriguez, had the same story. They were basically grabbed off the street and forcibly put into a blue and white van. Special Agent Cassidy remembered that Jaime was also kidnapped in a blue and white van. He decided to show Montoya and Rodriguez mugshots of the men arrested in connection with Estrada's abduction. Both victims immediately responded that those were the same individuals that had kidnapped them. And there were two others, the armed men they escaped from. 
We then started to interview them in greater detail. They said they were held in the basement of a house with a third man. Spin them around and put them on the poster. They were all bound to metal poles. Each of their families were called with demands for ransom money and cars. For more than a week, the kidnappers barely fed the men. A diabetic, Rodriguez was affected most. Without his medication, his blood sugar rose, which could have rendered him unconscious or even killed him. Investigators suspected that Jaime was not the third man. He said he had been held in a bathroom, not a basement. So they showed the men his photo. Investigators were right. It wasn't him. Did he escape with you at the same time? They said the day before, the third man managed to escape by breaking through the duct tape that held him. They never saw him again and did not know who he was. When the kidnappers realized the third man had escaped, they tried moving Rodriguez and Montoya out of the house. It was then that the men escaped. When asked why they may have been singled out to be kidnapped and held for ransom, I'll be holding back something. Neither man had an answer. But consider yourselves lucky that you made it out. Agents obtained a federal search warrant for the Newland Avenue house where Rodriguez and Montoya were held. They collected duct tape bindings, hairs, clothing fibers. And dozens of fingerprints. The bathroom in the house did not match the description given by Jaime Estrada. Investigators believed he'd been held at a different location. Agents also recovered a Norenko assault rifle from the house. A firearms expert determined that the bullet that was recovered from Jaime was consistent with one that would have been shot through the Norenko rifle. In one of the bedrooms, agents found an envelope with a Los Angeles address. Inside were several photographs of a man holding the same Norenko rifle. We took those photographs and put them into an appropriate photo array. We showed that photo array to several of the victims of the kidnappings, and they identified that as the subject uh, that was involved in their kidnapping. Now agents had the face of one of the two fugitives, but still no names. Agents then received information from running the kidnappers' license plates. Our investigation led us to find an address in Chicago that was associated with the vehicle. We then had agents go to that residence. Agents spoke to Adalia Francisco. She reluctantly agreed to be interviewed. After persistent questioning, Mrs. Francisco told agents that her husband, Ricardo, was in hiding 
having escaped from a band of kidnappers. I don't know what to do. Someone that kidnapped your husband? Yes. They called here and... Investigators determined he was the third man held in the Newland Avenue home. They just won't stop. I don't know what to do. Pressed further, she explained why her husband and the other men were being held. Further investigation and intensive interviews led us to determine that there was a nexus to illegal drug activity in each one of these individual kidnappers. Friends of Ricardo Francisco revealed that he was a drug runner. He owed a drug cartel $100,000. Montoya owed $130,000 to the same drug cartel. Rodriguez was not involved in dealing drugs himself. It was his son. But that did not matter to the cartel. His son had owed some money, and they grabbed the dad. In the case of Jaime Estrada, our investigation did not reveal any involvement in legal drug activity, and we do not believe he had any. It seemed the cartel had been duped by the girl who lured Jaime into the van. Informants identified her as Juanita Gonzalez. The true subject in this case was the girl. She was the one that had ripped off these guys uh, from a kilo of, of cocaine, and then she tried to save her own hide by laying it off on an innocent person. She just blamed it on Jaime, who was just innocent in all of this. All Jaime's family could do was pray he'd make it through surgery. But 17-year-old Jaime Estrada could not hold on. Infection eventually killed him. This has now become a case of murder. After conducting extensive interviews in the Newland Avenue neighborhood, agents finally identified the three men already in custody as Salome Varela, Jesus Ruiz, and Miguel Torres. The man in the photograph was identified as Jose de la Paz Sanchez. The final suspect was known only as Beto. They were still at large, wanted not only for kidnapping, but for murder. In 1996, Chicago area investigators captured three alleged members of a kidnapping ring that took the life of 17-year-old Jaime Estrada. They still had three suspects to find. FBI Special Agent Kevin Cassidy had the name of one of the fugitives, Jose Sanchez. His photo was discovered in an envelope during a crime scene search. The envelope had an address in Los Angeles. Uh, we then surmised that the subject had fled the area and uh, it would be logical to look for him in Los Angeles. Uh, we obtained an arrest warrant and we forwarded that information to our Los Angeles office. In L.A., FBI Special Agent Scott Hanley set out to apprehend Sanchez. Okay. All right. We went out to the location, which uh, was a house in the Echo Park area of Los Angeles. After we'd been on the house for uh, over three hours, one of the team observed a, uh, a male Hispanic individual uh, walk out of the house. Um, but at that time, because of the distance away from him, we couldn't tell if it was uh, Mr. Sanchez or not. 
we were able to follow him for approximately about a half hour on three different freeways in Los Angeles until he finally went to the West Los Angeles area. The man parked outside a home improvement store. Even with a photograph of the suspect, they still could not tell if it was Sanchez. If you've never met the person before and all you have is a photograph, you're trying to look at a real person to match it up with a photograph and who knows how old that can be. From the photo, they knew Sanchez had a Grim Reaper tattoo on his right upper arm. One of the officers went in on foot to, to try to get a closer look uh, of the individual. He followed this person in the store. I saw this tattoo of the Grim Reaper. It was a positive ID. Agents were getting closer to nabbing the fourth suspect in Jaime Estrada's kidnapping and murder. In the end, it was surprisingly simple. Sanchez had been handcuffed before he realized what was happening. He was unarmed and arrested without incident. Sanchez confessed to taking part in Jaime Estrada's kidnapping and was present after Jaime had been shot. When Mr. Sanchez had admitted that he knew that uh, Mr. Estrada had been shot, I asked him, well, you know, what was the condition of, uh, of the boy? And he said, well, you know, he was talking to us. And I said, well, what did he ask? And he said, well, he asked, I, that, can I take him to the hospital? And I said, well, why didn't you do that? And he said, well, I didn't know what to do. He also admitted to the other kidnappings and said they had been ordered by a drug cartel as a way to collect money owed to them. Request that your lawyer be present before you answer any further questions. Chicago investigators then began to intensify their search for the man known only as Beto. They conducted dozens of interviews with associates of the three men already in custody. They revealed that Beto had a sister, Monique Jimenez. Facing accessory charges, she cooperated. Do you know anybody named Beto? She said Beto's real name was Luis Carreno. Um, have you been back? The sister was able to describe some of the circumstances of Jaime's kidnapping, particularly the shooting. Uh, she advised that she was in the apartment at the time and had heard the shot and saw Jaime shot. And she advised that the person that shot him was, in fact, her brother. There was blood there, so I had to go back. She said she had cleaned blood off the bathroom floor with bleach. She gave the FBI the address of the apartment. Yes, it's um, 2532 Moody Avenue. An evidence response team processed the apartment, collecting samples, including the grout between the bathroom floor tiles. Lab examiners later discovered traces of blood in the grout. DNA testing proved the blood was Jaime's. In October 1997, federal prosecutors in Chicago tied the complex case together for a jury. The four suspects in custody, Salome Varela, 
Jesus Ruiz, Miguel Torres, and Jose Sanchez were found guilty of racketeering, conspiracy, weapons violations, assault charges, and all four kidnappings. They were all sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The FBI tracked Juanita Gonzalez, the girl responsible for Jaime's abduction, to Mexico, where she completely disappeared. They are still looking for fugitive Luis Carreno, the man known as Beto. He is currently wanted, and there's an outstanding arrest warrant for him. And we are working with Interpol and our other friends in foreign countries to attempt to locate him to this day, and we will continue to do so. The Estradas pray that someday soon, the authorities will find Carreno, the man the FBI suspects killed Jaime. For the family and for the investigators who worked so hard to save Jaime, the case will never be over until everyone responsible for his death is brought to justice.